SBS Audio is supported by advertising. We would like to offer our respects to the traditional elders of all generations upon whose lands this podcast has been created, including the Kamaregal people of the Eora Nation. We'd also like to extend that respect and recognition to all First Nations listeners. How well do you think you know someone? Perhaps your initial impressions are all wrong. What if their real stories are more interesting, more amazing and more surprising than you ever expected? This is Let Me Tell You from SBS Voices. I'm Sarah Malik. And I'm Caitlin Chang. And we are your hosts as we hear the unexpected stories behind ordinary people's lives. All of these stories were originally written for SBS Voices, Australia's home of diverse storytelling, but we thought they were so good they deserve to be spoken out loud. If there's one stereotype about Asian mums, it's this concept of a tiger parent. Yeah, tell us what you mean by that. Well, for those of you who don't know, a tiger parent is basically uh, someone who's a real strict authoritarian kind of parent. And I reckon it's pretty unfair that this kind of gets tagged to Asian mums because I'm pretty sure that it happens in all cultures. Yeah, exactly. I think most parents at least feel the pressure to be a tiger parent at some point. But what happens if you were tiger parented as a child? How do you break that cycle and adopt a gentler approach with your own kids? That's something that Ryder Shah Adil is trying to do. Definitely. And in the story that we hear today, Ryder reveals how she grew up feeling terrified of failure, even after being ducks of her year and being on track to be a doctor. Learn about how her life turned out very differently from her parents' expectations. Here is Ryder Shah Idol reading, Like many Asian mothers, I'm learning to untiger myself. Oh no, Papa's home, my six-year-old daughter complained when my husband came home from work one evening. That means Mama's going. My three-year-old daughter groaned in solidarity. Don't go, Mama. My one-year-old son clung to me, sensing my energy shift. Ouch, nothing quite as painful as the truth from the mouth of my babies. Just relax and spend time with us, my husband said. Every time I come home, you run away. I balked when my husband said that, mostly because it was true. Since most of the caregiving duties fall on me, I welcome the breaks when my husband comes home. I'm also aware that even though breaking generational cycles is hard work, I do need to balance out my solitude with connection time. There is healing in both. I'm one of the rising numbers of untigering mothers, a term coined by American-born Chinese author Iris Chen. Untigering essentially refers to two things, the process of detoxing from being tiger-parented and the process of detoxing from being a tiger parent. Iris Chen's book sealed my commitment to parenting my children differently to how I was parented. She's an Asian mother and, like me, does not have white privilege shared by many other peaceful parenting advocates. 
Instead, we have generations of ancestral trauma as well as resilience from a combination of factors like systemic racism, colonialism, and the model minority myth. I remember growing up feeling terrified of failure. My family had moved to Sydney and it was up to me, the eldest girl, to make all that sacrifice worth it. I had always wanted to be a writer, but my father wanted me to be a doctor. I graduated high school as class ducks, did well in my arts and science degrees, made it to medical school and then left after ongoing mental health struggles. Now that I'm a mother and a freelance writer, I resist that old narrative of being a tiger parent precisely because of how much it harmed me. On a practical level, that means showing myself grace and kindness so I can do the same for my children. A large part of that is being able to slow down enough to enjoy my children. That sounds deceptively easy but can be incredibly difficult when I have been programmed to equate my self-worth with material success. Motherhood, by definition, is not very financially lucrative. The yardstick for success for me kept shifting when I was growing up and I never felt like I was ever enough. Until I did my hard inner work and had children of my own. I don't have to prove anything to my children. They already love me. They forgive me when I'm grumpy, when I yell or get distracted. My toddler happily explores his own world and always comes back to find me. My younger daughter lit up with joy when she learned I could whistle. And my elder one said I was the best artist in the world. I rest in their love and hope they will always be able to rest in mine. I've become better at slowing down and asking my baby son if I can give him a kiss or a hug. He is endlessly thrilled and asks for more. I remind myself to give my daughters hugs and kisses every day. Like a lot of other Asian children, hugs and kisses came in short supply and were saved for truly special or tragic occasions. I'm changing that for my children one hug at a time. I'm getting better at allowing myself to rest even when I feel guilty about it. I'm getting better at setting boundaries around my time and who I allow into my life. A large part of my untiring journey has to do with reparenting my own inner child through journaling, therapy, and being more in tune with my body. Learning to sit with discomfort is a process I am still learning. I teach my kids this skill and hopefully model it. I tell them that there are no good or bad feelings. There are simply feelings, and all feelings pass if we allow them to. I have my tendency to hide in my phone, book, audiobook when I feel overwhelmed, but distraction doesn't help me in the long run. What helps me is placing my hand on my heart, closing my eyes, taking a deep breath, holding it, then take a long exhale. I still need daily pockets of solitude to be calm for my children. It soothes me to sink into my writing or study. What helps is focusing on the relationships I'm building with my children and embracing the chaos that comes with such little ones. There is so much to be grateful for in this whirlwind stage of parenting and I choose to look for it every day. When my husband comes home these days, 
I'm getting better at resisting my reflex to jump up, throw our kids at him and hide in my room. Instead, I take a deep breath, smile, then ask him how he's doing. I marvel at how safe and loved they are, how safe and loved we all are. I hope that this is my legacy to my children, a sense of safety, security and enoughness to tide them through the rest of their lives. And now we're joined by writer Shah Idil, author of Like Most Asian Mothers, I'm Learning to Untiger Myself. Hi, Ryder. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's so exciting having you both actually being able to speak with me. It's awesome. It's so nice to see your face. And I, we should let the listeners know that we're actually speaking to you from Malaysia. So we're doing yes. this over the magic of the internet. So that story is one that I think lots of people, lots of mothers, especially Asian mothers um, would relate to. And you talk Mm -hmm. a lot about how you are untigering yourself and kind of undoing memories from your childhood of being tiger parented. What was it like for you growing up? And what do you remember most about your childhood and being tiger parented? I just remember a lot of emphasis on I really had to study, I really had to do well. No, because in Singapore, I was the Malay minority kid, you know. Right. And I had to really work hard and do really well in English, especially at the cost of my mother tongue, Malay, you know. And uh, being that weird outcast kid in the Malay class was like, why can't you speak Malay properly and getting made fun of? So I was constantly never fitting in, even in Singapore, the country of my birth, you know. So that was uncomfortable. But I had great memories of my siblings, actually. We would always play together. There were so many of us, you know, um, I was the oldest of six. So my happiest memories of in Singapore had to do with playing with my siblings and, the, you know, and just play. What was not fun was the pressure from my dad, especially to just do well in school at all costs. And I have many big complex feelings about childhood and being tiger parented but the overarching feeling was just always fear always this desperation to have to do better and even if you come home with 98 percent, where's the other two percent <laughs> right <laughs> i'm like oh my gosh and so i i don't blame my younger self for never feeling like i could rest or never feeling that i could be enough and you talk about the kind of fear and that you know you have to do well and you have to study and that, that yeah. fear of failure, which you mentioned in the story. What were you afraid of? Like what were the consequences if for like not getting the extra 2% in a test, for example? I don't think I can put it properly into words, but I guess it was this feeling of never feeling safe and rested So I was always like chasing this illusion of I'll get that unconditional love and the ability to rest and be celebrated for who I am, you know, if I get that 2%. But because the Yahtzee was always shifting, I never got it. (laughs) You know, and it was something I realized that, oh, this is something I cannot get externally. This is something internally I can give myself, you know, but that took a lot of therapy in my 20s. Ryder, what I loved about your story is the compassion that you had for your parents who were immigrants trying to survive a new country, as well as understanding the toll that this pressure to succeed had on you. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I'm backed out in Malaysia, like my ancestral home, like my late grandparents fled 
the communists in Malacca, Malacca to go to Singapore. So it's kind of like a full circle. And it all starts with awareness, you know, like I being aware of what my parents had to go through, what my late grandparents had to. And as a parent now, knowing how hard I tried to do better for my children and knowing that every parent essentially tries with their worldview. And, um, and yeah. we're always building on the last generation, what everyone gave before and trying to move forward and realizing one day my kids are going to be who knows, parents themselves, and they might look back and say, ha, Mama, how could you have done that? And I'll be like, I'm sorry, yeah. I did the best I could. And a lot of the toll that you talk about, like going through high school, you know, feeling like under that pressure to perform. Yeah. So can you talk about what that moment was like for you when you realized you wanted to leave medical school? So it was, I was in the Sydney Uni postgrad program. So it was a four-year program. And in the middle of it, the end of second year, there was a barrier exam. It's a, literally a barrier. Like you have to pass it to be able to progress to third year and then fourth year. And I didn't realize it at the time, but while I was studying, I was really stressed. And when I sat the exam, I did it too quickly. Like I didn't realize that I was already in the middle of a mental breakdown while it was happening because I didn't have insight till after it happened. And failing that exam was the best thing that ever happened to me because the very compassionate, you know, GP counselor at Westmead Hospital where I used to be based for clinical placement, she looked at me and she's like, Ryder, we may need to have a change of plans and a break because you didn't pass your Barry exam and you've been through a lot. You know, and that was also a time where like my parents' marriage, we had, which had already been in a not great state for many decades, was already like, you know, almost done, done. You know, so a lot of things were happening. So I guess failing the barrier exam, realizing my parents were about to split up, all these things made me realize like, this is not sustainable. This is not a life that I want to wake up to and keep having to go through this turmoil and chaos. And so that's when I asked the sub-dean, like, can I defer? She's like, yes, please, please defer <laughs> and like rest, you know, get on meds if you need to. And and I did and it was wonderful. But I remember asking the sub-dean, like, what do I tell my dad? And then she's like, just tell him that you're deferring. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm an Asian child. <laughs> I just, I can't just defer, you know, I need to like, just keep slogging through, except I couldn't anymore. I literally, physically, mentally, emotionally could not. And it had burnt out so badly that I had to stop, you know. And what was the reaction of your parents when you told them, hey, mom and dad, uh, I want to leave. I want to leave medical school. Yeah, I mean, I, I told my mom because she's always been my safe space. She does not understand me a lot of the time, but she tries. You know, so and I didn't tell my dad. My brother told him, <laughs> you know, and that went down better. And you know, so yeah, so it's like my mom and my siblings were more on my side. And my dad was in Singapore anyway, so it didn't go down well. I think for a long time, my brothers probably didn't realize that my dad treated me differently. He was always extra hard on me. Um, looking back, can you see now why your parents were tiger parents, considering all that they had to go through? Yeah, I can see now clearer than ever. You know, like. So my dad, you know, was a really bright kid and he was like one of six boys and had great dreams, you know, for his own studies and successes, but it just didn't work out for him. You know, that's, that's a quote by Carl Jung, right? Like the greatest impact on a child is like the parent's unlived dream or something. You know, so he knew I was academic and bright, like we all were in different ways. And his perception was, 
you get a secure job, you be a doctor, you have your own income, it's stable. There's always like, you know, uh, a need for female doctors, especially like a female gynecologist. <laughs> like, if you don't like it, it's okay. It's like something you'll grow into. You can write about it, which are all valid points. Except the process itself is brutal, you know. And I just, I couldn't. I just struggled, you know. And I took me a while to make peace of that. Like, I couldn't achieve my dad's dream of me wanting to be a doctor. Well, at least my mom was happy that I was happy. You know, that's what my mom has always wanted, for all her children, for us to be happy and safe and content. You know, and that's where I am now. <laughs> so now that you are a parent writer and yes. look, I feel like there is so much pressure on parents. So I can see why some are tiger parents. It almost feels like it's harder to untiger yourself. Do you ever kind of feel that pressure to tiger parent your kids? Yes, it's still in my yeah. DNA, I'm afraid, <laughs> you know. Do you catch and, uh, yourself doing things? I'm getting better at catching myself, yeah. And it really helps that my husband is, is conscious that we were both tiger parented, we both struggled and we both went differently for our kids. You know? And that I feel is like the biggest anchor for me, knowing that I have a supportive husband and we're both parenting on the same page. And we all slip up. <laughs> We take turns getting triggered, but thankfully not at the same time. <laughs> In what ways do you find yourself like slipping up sometimes? I think especially living in Malaysia where there is like massive importance on having good adab, having good manners, being respectful to the elderly, calling people by the right titles. These kinds of things are like very, very valued where I live right now in, in Malaysia. And the thing is, we're in a pandemic, you know, we're not encouraging our kids to like shake hands or kiss hands anymore. So that's a blessing, I would say, like not needing kids to, you know, because that's uncomfortable for me because if my child is not comfortable, like coming up to an elderly person, they don't know, that's fine. I'm not going to push them, you know, but that creeping pressure, mm. it does kind of happen. And you also talk a bit about mother's guilt. And I guess that's such a strong thing that all mothers feel. And then yeah. I imagine it can be compounded when you have been, I guess, tiger parented as well. There's like the pressure on kind of being the best parent you can be and then the pressure that you felt mm -hmm. growing up from your own parents. How did you manage to break that circuit? I think my default setting of mom guilt is always on. <laughs> it's this constant ever lurking in the background. Yeah. Um, I just try to notice it and talk myself down like okay it's okay to feel guilty but I'm gonna take that break anyway you know I'm going to go for a walk by myself anyway I'm going to get the groceries by myself anyway like just noticing that because I know that when I don't pay attention to that rising feeling of overwhelm my kids will do something which is totally what a kid would do and I'll explode I didn't see growing up what I do now you know I didn't see my mom being able to nurture her career or her dreams or her aspirations. I didn't see my dad supporting my mom in like that in any way. And the same for my late grandma. That didn't happen. What I'm doing right now feels like this is the first time I'm seeing this in myself. So it does feel mm. weird and uncomfortable and sometimes like really indulgent, like, oh, you know. Then I tell myself, this is what I want my kids to see, especially my daughters. And my son, this is what I want them to normalize, you know, where their dad will look after them and I can go and do my writing and I can do my work or I can just 
sit in a cafe and watch Netflix and eat yeah. I don't know, ice cream or whatever by myself. If nobody on my lap stealing my food, <laughs> you know, that's what I want my children to grow up seeing as a template so that when or if it's their turn, it won't be that hard to take breaks and ask for help because it was already done before that becomes their template. You've written for Voices before about your own kind of experiences of neurodivergence. Yes. I was wondering if that comes into play at all with your parenting and how you parent. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, like neurodivergence is like the lens through which I exist and view the world. I can't switch it off. (laughs) You know, I can't put it in my backpack and like tuck it away. It's something that I'm aware of, especially on my chronic pain flare-up days or especially on my days when I'm on really low spoons or especially on my days where I'm like, there's just too much to do. I, I don't have the energy to do it. And that's when I'm most need, when I'm, it's the most necessary for me to just rest. And it's also the hardest (laughs) because that's when like all that terrible tigering default really flares up. And when really, when I think about it, it's like, what would my ancestors really want me to do? Would they really want me to burn out and explode? Or wouldn't they want me to rest? Wouldn't that be something wonderful for my great, great, great grandma, grandpa to know that, okay, Raida, who's now living back in Malaysia, you know, she can ask for help. She can rest. She can lie down without guilt. You know, women and people of color, we often feel like we have to work twice as hard to get half as much. And to resist that hustle culture is really radical. How important is it for you to have boundaries and practice self-care? It is 200% important, like infinitely important. You know, like I have a checklist in my head of things that I need to do every day from like solitude to making sure I've eaten enough to making sure, you know, all of this stuff, you know, and I can tell when I haven't done enough of that, that's when I'm more likely to be snappish or like grumpy or upset. You know, and one thing that really throws me off is when plans change. And this is the trouble with little children and being in this stage of life. This constantly change. And I struggle so much when plans change. (laughs) It gives me so much stress. And it's likely that I might struggle with this for the rest of my life. This is part of my neurodivergence. It doesn't come really easily to me. Like my husband would be like, did you have anything to eat? Why are you scolding me? I'll be like, oh yeah, sorry. I forgot to eat breakfast. Okay, that's why I'm grumpy. So just those, and he knows by now, not to take it personally, (laughs) you know. They'd be like, okay, here's an apple. Please eat it. I go, okay, thanks. Then I get to recalibrate myself to like, okay, that self-care is not something that is like an option. Like I need it every day to function, you know. Just the kids can just watch whatever they want on Netflix, the cartoons, YouTube. They're safe. I'm safe. (laughs) Oh, what a bottle, light down, chamomile tea. I still have to unpack my guilt around screen time. And all the rest of it, you know. Oh, look, screen time. Look, let's not take that away just yet. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Please, no. Thank you so much, Ryder, for your chat with us today. I'm definitely going to follow your mantra of mother's self-care, putting that higher up the list, I think. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Caitlin. And that's it for our final episode for now. 
It has actually been so much fun revisiting some of our favourite stories and actually giving them a second life in audio form, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. I think that it is such a privilege and pleasure of this job just to be able to hear and share so many incredible stories and also get the opportunity to actually meet some of the writers who wrote them and learn more about them. Yeah, it was really good to kind of unpack their brains a little bit and just find out a little bit more that we couldn't get in the 800 word count of our articles. Yeah, find out the story behind the story. And don't forget, if you've missed any of these remarkable stories, you can jump back in our podcast feed and listen to earlier episodes. Or if you want to read the stories in their original form, head to the SBS Voices website. Thank you for listening. See ya. Let Me Tell You is produced by Sarah Malik and Caitlin Chang with audio by Jeremy Wilmot and Max Gosford. Our executive producers are Natalie Hambly and Danielle Toich. If you'd like to read more of our stories, head to the SBS Voices website at sbs.com.au forward slash voices. Listener.